Thank you, Ted. Um, our time at Cornerstone, uh, you know, the direction of the ministry Sunday morning is our gospel proclamation and gathering together in Cornerstone. Our hope and aim is that we would live and apply the truths that we hear Sunday morning. And one of the areas that the Lord has given us very directly as a gift to live that out is in the context of our relationships, our relationships at home with family members, with friends, eventually co-workers in the world outside. How do we um, live the truth of this great God who we heard about? And one of the areas I want to sort of talk about today is our, our friendships. And we're going to start with my buddy Nabil here, and then we're going to move to Dr. Grisanti as well, and he's going to close the show down, and then uh, maybe we'll have a little bit of time to gather in small groups and pray for one another too, especially for our, our friendships and our relationships, that in our friendships and our relationships that the Lord puts in our lives, that we would live out those truths of humility and dependence and reflecting that we have a God who is faithful, who is strong, and who is also humble and good. Um, and before we start, I just wanted to get you to have a look with me at, at Psalm 34, and I'd like to read the first 10 verses before we get started. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Would you join with me in, in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the testimony of these words that we have lived out in so many different ways that through the church that your son purchased with his blood, we have been blessed in countless ways. We have tasted and we have seen that you are good. And when trials and challenges come, sometimes it's hard to remember, sometimes it's hard to see, but the truth remains the same. Lord, you are indeed good. You are indeed gracious. You do indeed take care of your children and have done so uh, in the past, in the present, and you will in the future. And, and so we just thank you for that and praise you for that. And we just pray for this time. We pray for the children who have left, that they might taste and see that you are good uh, as we speak, and that we too, Lord, might hear and see and celebrate this reality in our own lives this day. And as we depart, may we share it with others. In your name we pray, amen. Well, one of the things that the Lord does, one of the gifts that he gives us are uh, friendships and relationships. Um, and within the context of the local church, you know, it starts obviously, as we talked about this morning, with 
our relationship with Christ, Ephesians 2, of God's knowing us and loving us before the foundation of the earth, and then planning and preparing with the chief cornerstone, Christ, to put our lives together. And that sweetness we talked about Wednesday night at Lagos of growing closer to Christ and growing closer to one another. And that's not always easy, and there's bumps along the road. And when Dr. Grisanti comes up later, I'm going to talk and ask him about advice about how do we pursue unity in those relationships, even in the hard times. But uh, Nabil, you get the easy task, I think, in the warm-up before we get to uh, the trials and tribulations. But Nabil's a buddy of mine, Nabil. Um, and so I wanted to start with the friendship that God gave us um, as a gift and within the context of the local church, because that's where it happened. But maybe you can share with the church how long we've known each other and how we first met. Sure. The recollections might be a little different. But. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I was born in, uh, in Egypt, and my family uh, immigrated to uh, Toronto, Canada when uh, I was almost five years old. And when we arrived in Canada, uh, my parents uh, started attending uh, an Arabic-speaking uh, church uh, that was on the same uh, grounds as a church in Toronto called Knox Presbyterian Church, which happened to be the church where Mark and his family uh, were attending at the time. And so I would uh, go to the English uh, Sunday school. Uh, Mark would go to uh, the Sunday school at Knox Presbyterian Church as well. And that's, just outed my Presbyterian background. Exactly, this is supposed exactly. to be a, a dispensational he, fine TMS church. He, he eventually reformed, so not, 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 not to worry, not to worry. He's come around on a lot of things. <laughs> um, but that's, that's where we met. We met. I, I have to say, you know, back in those days as, uh, as young kids uh, in Sunday school, uh, most of our time was, uh, was probably spent uh, talking about things like hockey and uh, our favorite uh, hockey team at the time, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I think God has, Still are. God, God has punished us for having uh, those kinds of conversations in, in Sunday school because the, the Maple Leafs have not won the Stanley Cup since the year that Mark and I were born in uh, <laughs> 1967. So we're still, still waiting to see if it'll happen in our lifetime or not. But that's where we, uh, we first met. Uh, later on, we uh, attended uh, the same Christian school uh, in Toronto, and then uh, Mark uh, Mark went off uh, to a public high school for a few years. At the at the end of uh, of high school, I stayed in the Christian uh, Christian uh, high school. Uh, but then we uh, that became explains a lot of the two trajectories. <laughs> And then, and then we became uh, uh, roommates our first year of, uh, of university at a uh, university called uh, uh, University of Western Ontario in, in London, Ontario. So we roomed together uh, that first year and uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've been friends uh, and a, a wonderful Christian f uh, friend for, uh, for all these years since. All these years, 50 years. 50 okay. years, yeah. So I want to go back. I know back. we don't look that old, but. <laughs> yeah, I feel it. I want to go back in time when we, we first hung out because we did Sunday school together and then we would do the beginning of children's church. They would get together. You would hear the hymns 
and the prayer, and then they would dismiss us right. afterwards. Okay, Nabil. Now, we were both around five years old. Now, you have to understand in Canada, this is a long time ago, 50 years ago, the only thing happening in Canada was hockey. And the only thing televised that was of any notable worth on Saturday evening, it was the hot ticket Saturday evening was hockey night in Canada. So everybody would be watching hockey. This is how you prepared for church. Hockey and see these guys beat each other up Saturday night. And then you'd come in for church Sunday morning, right? That's true. That's and, true. And so I, I, will, I won't speak for Nabil, but I was not saved at that time when we first met, right? Unsanctified, unregenerate, right? So we would sit in the front rows and pews like this, and we would, maybe I should say I, because I was always the one who got in trouble. You never got in trouble, but I was the one who got pulled. It's we true. would talk about while the pastor was up speaking about everything that happened in hockey night in Canada the night before. Who won, who was in the goalie, what, all, the, all the blow by blow we would talk. And the pastor of that church, his name was Jay Glenn Owen. And Jay Glenn Owen had taken over uh, for Martin Lloyd-Jones. When Martin Lloyd-Jones retired, he was the pastor, he was the Welsh pastor who was called upon to fill Martin Lloyd-Jones' pulpit uh, in London and then after got called to Knox Presbyterian Church. And in my recollection and unsanctified ears, he had the longest prayers with this fairly thick Welsh brogue and he would just commune with the Lord. And I saw it as an opportunity to talk about hockey. And I just found it intolerable to sit still for those huge long prayers. Now, the vengeance is my children complain privately about how long my prayers are. And they privately ask me if I could shorten them every week. And then when I'm done, if it is slightly shorter, they give me a thumbs up based on how short the sermon or the prayer is. And I just think... You, you never sat through Jay Glenn Owen's <laughs> prayers. But while this really lovely, really just a lovely man of God would be up there pouring his heart out to the Lord, I would talk to Nabil about what happened in the hockey game the night before. And then there was this one incident, I don't know if you recall, but his wife used to sit behind us. And I guess she had had enough of this little Asian guy talking about hockey while her husband poured his heart out in the pulpit. And so I was tapped on the shoulder to come and sit next to her to do damage control. And I took her very literally, and Julie will tell you I'm sort of a literal person if someone says that I do it. So she said, come sit with me. So I actually climbed over the top of the pew to get to her, much to my mother's shame as the entire Knox Presbyterian saw this child climb over the top and I can only imagine what Jay Glenn Owen was thinking as he is looking down in the audience. Fortunately, my parents were in the Arabic service, so they, they missed that. Uh, so you got the they pass. They missed that. Nabil never got in trouble, though. Mark, I have to say, I've, I've blocked that memory out of my, uh, out of my memory bank, but... Uh, I was traumatized by it for the rest of my <laughs> life, so... I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, yeah, I mean, looking back... Uh, I wasn't saved either um, at five years old. Uh, I would say that uh, growing up in a Christian Christian home, like probably many of you were, uh, I don't really recall a time in my life where 
I didn't believe in God, but it took a few years and the work of the Holy Spirit before I really understood what it was to uh, be a follower of Christ, to have your sins forgiven, uh, that, you know, God, God doesn't have grandchildren. Uh, God has children. And so that didn't come until later on in, in, in my life, uh, my life either. Though maybe I wasn't quite as rebellious, but... <laughs> I, I want to say this, though, to encourage you all. I look back and say, you know, God brings many trials, and yet you look at through the local church, I've had this friendship for 50 years, and Nabil's come to Shepherd's Conference for many years, and we've kept in touch all the way through. It's really Christ that was the bond, and yet the Lord had prepared that before either of us were saved, serendipitously from a human perspective, you know, you've got this Arabic congregation, the kids come in for a portion, and it's just being together, and then we popped up in the same Christian school, and, you know, that was unplanned by either of our parents, per se, that we would see one another, but through the years, the Lord provides even, it's a wonder to see even before we're saved, this precious gift of friendships where Christ is really at the center and using that in a sanctifying and protective way through the years. And certainly I was blessed in the recipient of that, even, and I say this to parents, and we need to think about it for the people who come in. Quite frankly, when I didn't have a heart to hear anything that was coming from the pulpit and had just totally fleshly instincts, and yet God was so gracious and merciful during that time uh, to provide in that way. Now, Nibs, I want to talk about your background a little bit. Why did your family leave uh, Egypt and, and end up coming and immigrating to Canada? And, and what's the overlap with the history of faith? Yeah. I, it's probably a complicated uh, answer to that question. I mean, there were many, many factors. Um, I come from a fairly big family. Uh, lots of aunts and uncles and uh, cousins uh, back back in Egypt at the time. Uh, since then, the the entire family, all my aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, uh, have all moved to North America. Many of them in uh, in Toronto, uh, but my parents were uh, one of the uh, the early. Uh, siblings, I guess, to, to leave. Uh, my dad, uh, my dad is now a retired uh, ophthalmologist, uh, but he was a doctor back uh, in, in Egypt. Um, as part of uh, the, the medical community there, uh, everything was, uh, was government run. So you're not working for uh, you know, a corporation, you're not working in private practice, you're really working for, for the government as, as a doctor uh, back then. And as a Christian doctor in a Muslim uh, country uh, that's really overwhelmingly uh, Muslim, 90% of the population in Egypt is, is Muslim, uh, I'm sure that that was one of the factors that led my parents uh, to decide to uh, to leave because it would have been a very very difficult environment uh, for for my father to continue to practice uh, medicine even uh, where he would have been allowed to to practice which hospital he would have been uh, allowed to conduct surgeries in you know et cetera et cetera. 
we immigrated in the early 1970s, and you know those who might be a little bit familiar with the history of Egypt knows know that there were a number of uh, of wars in the 1960s, you know, in particular. So uh, that was kind of a tumultuous uh, time in the history of uh, of Egypt. Uh, my parents having uh, two sons uh, at the time, uh, myself and my younger brother, uh, we would have been drafted into the military at the age of, uh, of 18. I'm sure that had something to do as well with my parents' uh, decision in a country where uh, war was, uh, you know, basically a, a, a constant presence in their lives, at least throughout the, the 1960s. So probably a desire to make sure that their their sons, you know, uh, <laughs> first of all were were alive into uh, adulthood, but uh, but also uh, had a uh, a stable and uh, and successful uh, livelihood. Uh, so those were a lot of the the factors: the the environment, the uh, being a Christian doctor, and uh, just a, a desire for. I think a more stable and, and, and better life in North America. Nibs, can you can you share a little bit about the Christian community that your family came out of in Egypt? You know, for our folks, when most people think of Egypt, we're not typically thinking about a Christian community there, but it's a very old Christian community that they come out of. Sure. So I mentioned 90% of the country is, uh, is Muslim, 10% uh, of the country would be uh, professing Christian, uh, but even within that 10%, 90% of the 10% would be uh, Orthodox, and only about 10% of the 10% would be, uh, would be uh, Evangelical. Uh, my mom grew up in uh, a Presbyterian church uh, in Cairo, uh, which is uh, probably the biggest church uh, in uh, in Egypt. It's got a very interesting uh, history. Uh, it's called Custard Dabara. And my dad grew up uh, brethren. Uh, so uh, I think the, the brethren also have uh, a pretty strong presence among Christians within, uh, within Egypt. But the majority, again, of professing Christians in Egypt, by far, would would be Orthodox. Now, Nibs, when we went to college, <clears throat> your aunt came through the dorm room, okay, and she looked at all the names on the picture because they would have a picture of everybody in the dorm room, you know, and all the names. And I was there. I don't know whether you recall this, but I was there, and she it, it startled me a little bit because she went through the names of the people who were there, and she picked out which names were Christian and which ones were Muslim, okay? Now, why would she do that? And maybe you can give a little context here. At Western? This was when we were at Western. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, with your name, when we went to Egypt together, right. and we were taking a boat, the guy in the boat who was taking us, first looked at you, he asked what your name was, and then he wanted to know what your second name was. Right. And then I felt a little uneasy, yeah. and maybe I was just paranoid, yeah. with the sort of look he gave yeah. once he heard what your last name was. So can you yeah. give sure. us a little context? Because we don't think in those terms here. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, pretty much if someone knows that you're, you're Egyptian, one, they're probably going to think you're, you're Muslim and you probably have a very Muslim-sounding uh, last, last name. And if you don't, they're automatically going to assume that you're, you're Christian. Um, I don't know if, I've, uh, if you remember this, but um, uh, my first day at uh, the University of uh, Western Ontario... Uh, in biology class, we, we were in different tutorials in biology, if I recall. Uh, but my, my first day there, we had this uh, professor named Dr. Roth. I think he was from Transylvania, if you can believe it. Yeah, he was quite a character. And the very first day, he launched into this kind of uh, bizarre speech about uh, how he didn't believe in in miracles. Perhaps it was to you know convey to the class that you know here in biology class you know we do science you know we don't we don't do any of this uh, kind of creation you know kind of stuff. That's the, the the closest reasoning I can think of for why he would he would talk about this. Uh, but he also started talking about uh, about Moses and being on the mountain for, for 40 days and uh, how, uh, you know, that clearly led him to uh, hallucinate, you know, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, he put together the, the Ten Commandments and, you know, why, why would he uh, put the first commandment uh, as, as, as it is about having no other uh, gods? And that's because... He clearly just wanted the people to uh, to to believe what he was saying, which I thought was pretty lucid for someone who apparently was hallucinating for 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 those forty days. But uh, anyway, but all of a sudden he he actually picked me out of everybody in the class, and he asked. He said, "Nabil, why why would Moses have have done that?" And I was kind of really taken aback. You know, I, I graduated from this Christian high school, and uh, this was my very first experience in a in a secular university, and and I was stunned that a professor was asking me, uh, you know, this question. I mean, for me, the answer was obvious. I mean, well, it's, it's that's God's word. You know, that's what God said. So that's what Moses, uh, you know, put uh, put in. But I really think that the reason he, he picked me out is that he would have uh, thought that I was a Christian simply by the fact that I was Egyptian. My first name kind of gives that away. And then my last name being, being Tadros, he knew that I wasn't Muslim, that, that I would be Christian. You have to understand that Toronto at that time and Canada at that time there were a lot of Jews who had come out of the Holocaust. And of those who were survivors, they had immigrated. There were communities that stayed Orthodox, but a huge portion were still angry with God and sort of had ditched their Judaism and had pursued um, secular psychology, science, and all of those different things. Um, and what was interesting to me to go through that is that that name, your last name, Tadros, which... That's all I knew you as. You were the only Egyptian person I knew. So I didn't know any difference. But as time has gone on, that, that name, Tadros, can you share, like, Nibs, the origin of that name? 
Uh, well, a lot of people think it's Greek because of the OS ending, and and sure enough, uh, there there is some Greek ancestry, uh, you know, going going way back. Uh, I honestly don't know like all of the uh, all of the specifics. I think you actually dug into this a little bit Nabil, more than I, more than I, I, I did think what's at one point. Um, Nabil had this traumatic experience in Greece where he was ripped off taken advantage of, left for dead, and had to fly back with an intravenous, but, but yeah, but needed antibiotics and so on and so forth. So you'll forgive. The Lord has had to stretch him in loving Greek people and having a great forgiveness. They've been a scourge in his life. But when you go back into the history of Egypt, Alexander the Great comes in and he invades Egypt. And so people think of Cleopatra as this Nubian princess, but in fact, she's of Greek descent and part of the family of generals who Alexander the Great has left in Egypt to rule Egypt. So even during uh, the time of the Roman Empire, the ruling party is predominantly of Greek descent. Is that a fair statement, Dr. G? More yeah, or less. I have, I have cousins with blue eyes. So... so so you, you see later, it's not until the 6th or 7th century that Islam rises and through Africa invades and then takes charge and takes control and Egypt starts to become predominantly a Muslim country. But that name Tadros has ties with the Coptic world and the Greek world to Theodorus, which means gift of God. And so when people see that name Tadros, they know automatically it's not Muhammad Salah or it's not, you know, all of these other names. It's clearly that's the tribe and that's where you're connected with and it's tied to the name. Now, as you've made the point, God has no grandchildren, right? Uh, but nonetheless, we have this history of Christianity that goes back to Egypt, which they claim comes from Mark, who goes in and uh, evangelizes and, and witnesses there. But that idea of being marked for the Lord and standing out where I want to take that, Nabil, is maybe you can share with us today what it's like for evangelical Christians in Egypt. What are the challenges they faced and how persecution has refined that community? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting this information, of course, uh, sec secondhand because I haven't personally uh, you know, witness this my myself having left uh, Egypt at a at a young age, uh, but there there are a number of churches uh, in in Egypt, uh, both evangelical and and Orthodox, and so Christians are allowed to uh, worship God freely in churches. Uh, many of the churches, uh, you know, the Bible is preached uh, very faithfully and openly. Uh, the worship is uh, is wonderful. Uh, the believers there in in Egypt, uh, those those who I know, you know, they're very very uh, solid, committed uh, Christians. Uh, where uh, the situation becomes. Uh, more dicey for them is if you were to uh, proselytize uh, Muslims uh, in particular. And there have been a number of pastors uh, in Egypt that uh, are regularly in trouble uh, with the government authorities. 
uh, have spent time in uh, in prison. So that that does happen. So you are permitted to uh, to go to church, uh, to worship God, to be a Christian, uh, but you are living in a society that's that's ninety percent uh, Muslim, and there's a very very strong. Uh, faction within Israel that uh, within Israel within Egypt that has always wanted to turn uh, Egypt into more of an Islamic republic uh, along the lines of uh, Iran. Um, you know, you've you probably heard of the Muslim Brotherhood that was briefly uh, in power uh, after uh, President uh, Mubarak was uh, was overthrown. And, uh, you know, they, they tried to give an image of being, uh, you know, very, uh, very democratic and, uh, you know, very um, kind of, I guess, open to, uh, to other, other religions, etc. I think, uh, by and large, that's not believed. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has had a, a long history uh, in Egypt. Uh, uh, they're believed to be responsible for the assassination of uh, President Sadat. They tried to assassinate uh, President Nasser uh, before him. And so the military in Egypt, which has always been very strong, but still Muslim, uh, has, uh, has always kind of tried to suppress them because they do not want to see Egypt turn into uh, an, an Iran. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's still... Uh, a heavily Muslim Muslim country, so there's there's a tension uh, there for sure within within Egypt. One of the other things that that I've shared with Mark uh, previously is that um, when a church is built in Egypt, and it's not that common, you know, anymore, uh, but certainly when that large church that I mentioned earlier, Custer Dabar, was was built had a very tall steeple, and it could be really seen from all over Cairo. Well, what ended up happening is they then built a huge government building, you know, right in front of that church that completely covers it from from view, from distances. You know, they build a, a big mosque, you know, next to it, et cetera. And that, that will often happen. So if you, if you do get a church... Uh, in Egypt, you'll often have a mosque that's that's built right next to it, or big government building. So there's there's other forms of intimidation that that go uh, along there as well. So as long as you go stealth under the radar, do carry on your religion privately, no big deal. The moment you cross the line, and the big one is sharing your faith with Muslims, right? That gets you on the radar, and that becomes trouble, and can even lead to incarceration sure. if you're the leader of a community there. For sure. Yeah. And then your friends when and your family, who you introduced Stephen and I to when we went to visit Egypt, mm -hmm. my understanding was, that what's, what's the holiday? Is it Friday, Saturday? There yeah. because of the Muslim? Yeah. So they would do church, my understanding was Sunday evening, Nibs? Um, maybe Saturday evening, I don't remember. It was, truth, it was not yeah. typically the way we, yeah, you know, the, no. your, your yeah. relatives and, and Sundays friends who are believers day. were going to work and then they would come after work for at least one meeting in the church, yeah. um, you know, so they didn't have Sunday morning. It, it, whatever they did, it was on their own time, after hours, yeah. 
at their personal cost. Yeah. And as long as they did that, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. Would not be atypical, probably, for Christians in Egypt to, to meet many times during the week. Yeah. So. And then maybe you could share a little bit. They, they pay a cost a little bit because people know they're different and people's eyes are on them. But can you share a little bit what you shared this morning with me about what persecution has done for the church and how it sort of clarified who belongs and who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're living in uh, a society that uh, is going to persecute you, either overtly or in subtle ways, you know, for your faith, uh, it's going to cost you something to profess to be a Christian. So unless you're a true believer, you know, why would you want to uh, endure that? So I think persecution has definitely... Uh, had a purifying effect uh, on on the Christians uh, in Egypt. So, as I said, I mean, the Christians that I know uh, in Egypt, uh, they're incredibly uh, solid uh, believers uh, who love the Lord. And, uh, yeah, they, they, w- they would die for their faith if, uh, if, if needs be. So uh, I think when you're, when you're persecuted for your faith... Uh, you uh, you uh, you either are a true believer, uh, or you know there's no really real reason to to want to endure that kind of uh, persecution, and it, it separates the wheat from the chaff for sure. Yeah, and over the last twenty years, you shared with your parents going back and forth. One of the things that they have witnessed is there has been a certain vibrancy, especially among that community, uh, as things have been challenging for being public about your faith. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's always been there. Uh, I, I've probably noticed it just more as, uh, as an adult and uh, somebody who's uh, just a little bit more uh, in tune with what's going on in our, in our own culture and, and whatnot, but I, I think that that's always been present. It, it costs you something to be a, a believer in, in Egypt and in other countries where you're persecuted for your faith. And so... Um, if it's going to cost you something, then uh, if, if you're not a true believer, you're, 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 you're not going to stand up for your faith. Nibs, thanks so much for sharing. And I wanted to expose you also that we can pray for our brothers and sisters who don't look the same as us and yet are paying a really high price for walking with the Lord. And yet, um, I know on our trip, which is a long time ago, but one of the high lights of our trip was meeting your friends and your relatives who were Christians in in Cairo and to see the common bond that we have in Christ, but also to see the joy and delight. And I would say the hospitality that they extended to us as well, um, to see and to pray and to consider that even in the face of the lives they lived for them, it was normal. And I thought that had a profound impact on me is the things that we take for granted they don't have and yet pursuing and going to church in the evening meeting multiple times being at a church where there's a huge mosque right next to it and there's the call to prayer you know many times during the day that was something that they just took for granted and became sort of a non-issue for them in being part of the community and household of God. So, Nibs, thank you. And please pray for our brothers and sisters in Egypt. And uh, maybe we can just 
give a hand of appreciation for uh, <laughs> Brother Medea. Thank you. And now I'm going to call Dr. Grisanti up to help close down the show. What a terrible illustration, right? The show. Thanks. Dr. Grisanti's here because he has no uh, knowledge of my life prior to uh, my time at TMS, so it's a safe bet, right? It's enlightening. Um, Dr. G, we wanted to talk about relationships and living out maybe what we'd heard this morning um, about living out who God is and our worldview, let's say, and, and our core values and what the Lord has given us. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about how the Lord saved you and brought Martha Ann together and, and made that happen. Well, I grew up... Uh south of where Nibs and Toronto is, uh, western New York, and my mom and dad were believers, both extricated out of dysfunctional homes, if you will. And so when I grew up, I just, you know, a Christian home, and we went to church, a little Baptist church in our little village of 950 people, and heard the gospel regularly. So, even though it's not always the case. I think I accepted Christ at five where I'd heard the gospel in Sunday school and VBS and at home. I wanted to have my sins forgiven and uh, I wasn't like angelic from that moment on. But um, yeah, I just later on when I was a senior in high school, I was on the way to Bible college and I was struggling because I couldn't remember back to five and went forward at a camp invitation and made a profession of faith and went home right away and after that week and said I need to be baptized because I was going to be going to college in a couple of weeks and my mom and the pastor, my dad, all of them said, no, we, I mean, we think you were a believer then, but if you insist, we'll do it. And then, so my point is, is I, as I looked at that in the first year, I could see the work of God in my life and I could see God, I, God hadn't moved, I'd moved. And so there's a longer story there, I don't want to take all the time here. But anyway, so the Lord, uh, I think, uh, used that time to remind me to keep my eyes on Him. And uh, in between there, early, late, late elementary, I thought God was calling me to serve Him full time. thought I'd be in a mission field. So I went to Bible college, two years up in Canada. It took me a while to recover. You survived. <laughs> Out and about. So uh, <clears throat> I, I couldn't afford to go home for Christmas. No problem. It was all the way across the country. Uh, Prairie was in Alberta. I was from south of Toronto. And that's fine. I stayed there. Uh, did stuff. Ministry stuff. And it was great. So the next year I was going to do the same thing. And uh, met these two guys. First week of uh, class in the dining hall. A married student and a single guy and we became friends and the married couple had me over for dinner every Saturday night at uh, one of the little apartments there at Prairie and, and he was asking what am I going to do for Christmas and I said I'm going to stay on campus oh no you're not oh yes I am you know it's and then eventually I said okay okay I'll, I'll go with you and then he pulled out two photos of his sisters which one do you want <laughs> no we're not doing it this way I'd like to be married and 
have someone special in my life, but I'm not giving dibs here. So, but one of them is my wife. <laughs> so I went, I went, I went to Montana, and um, we uh, the kids asked, "Was I love at first sight, Dad?" Well, it was kind of like at first sight. I mean, she was a nice girl and seemed to love the Lord. But we were able to providentially do some things together, and it was interesting. We were doing one of the most unromantic things possible, gutting salmon that we'd caught in the snagging salmon. And uh, and this was not conniving on my part. Martha Ann, my wife's name, Martha Ann and I were at the sink helping clean the gutted fish to go down to the next step in the process. We are going to smoke them in a smokehouse they had. So, so really romantic, I realize. And anyway, we were talking about stuff, and one of the things is we were asking about, you know, what are you doing and why are you going to college and what are you studying? She was studying elementary ed. She felt God was calling her to the mission field, and uh, she either wanted to teach at a boarding school for kids if God didn't give her a husband and if God gave her a husband to teach her own kids and not send them off to a boarding school. Well, I mean, she thought God was leading her to Africa and that's where I thought I was heading to at the time. And it was like, she's going down my road. <laughs> Besides being a sweet, kind person. Anyway, so there's a long story from that point on, but eventually she relented. And uh, she did held me at arm's length, holding me at arm's length for a little bit, but and then uh, just uh, she's been an amazing blessing in my life in so many ways. She's she still loves me, and uh, yeah, just enriches my life in so many ways. So we have eight children, and then uh, five grandchildren, one more on the way, and so. She's been my partner through all of this, so I praise God. Can I rewind the tape here? Sure. Like my, my kids do with me on demand. And go back to that portion. You know, we think, hey, we meet the girl of our dreams. It all happens, tickety-boo. Life is happily ever after. But your statement that there was a, a slow point during that season, how did you process that at the time? when you went through that, because it must have been challenging, and then how do you and Martha Ann think about it now, looking back? Well, I mean, I totally wanted her in my life. Uh, I didn't understand, her sister didn't understand why she was holding me at arm's length. We were in a small, we were in a college, I had transferred to Pillsbury College in Minnesota, where she and her sister were going. When I transferred, uh, our relationship was on two of eight cylinders. Um, I didn't understand, but I wasn't going for her. I was going because I had engaged one of the profs there, Larry Pettigrew, on a, on a biblical issue that I was wrestling through, Hebrews 6. And I'd asked lots of leaders about it, and I got a letter back from him that made the most sense. And I thought, if that's a teaching I'm going to get, that's where I want to be. So, and uh, we ended up serving a little church an hour and a half away. I ended up, because another guy backed out, I was the preacher every week. We helped plant the church and the charter members, and so we're together all the time. But in that first semester, I mean, her and her sister would wash my clothes, they were kind, but just... That's a good deal. Yeah, but still it was... So one, there was one, one Saturday, uh, I walked her 
to all the meals. I walked her to classes. I walked her to the library. We studied every evening. Walked her back to her dorm with her sister. And I, we were coming back from lunch in the dining hall, and I said, Martha, can we talk? No, I don't want to ruin my day. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> I went back to my room. There's more fish in the sea than this. I don't have to deal with this. Because I'd been dealing with it all semester. And then I, I just... I wish you told me that 20 years ago. I mean, that's a good tool to have in your chest. No, it just is. It was not fun. But then I thought, you know, there's so many things in your life. Her love for the Lord and her willingness to serve... I mean, this was a mystery to me, this part. But uh, there's so many things in her life that I wanted in the life of the woman I married. I decided, no, I'm going to... I mean, I've had kids who have been in and out, right, of relationships. And there is a time to give up where the, the girl wants you out of her life and you need to get out of her life. So uh, we were just doing the same stuff. Uh, we, were, we were serving church together. We were uh, walking her to classes and... All that stuff that, like a brother, right? But I just refused to give up. And, and there was a, a biblical issue that I was wrestling through that she thought I didn't believe in eternal security. I had mistakenly told somebody I worked with who was the PNS in our church that I was just reading, thinking through Hebrew 6. She told Martha Ann I didn't believe in eternal security. And she'd had an older brother who went charismatic. There were all kinds of havoc in the, in the family. So she wanted nothing to do with that. She didn't want another one of those. No, and I didn't know that. And it just happened to be I was doing an independent study with Dr. Pettigrew on that passage, on eternal security. Just, I didn't doubt it. I just wanted to do know what to do with that passage. And so I, she asked if she could read the paper. I sent it to her. I mean, I gave it to her. You didn't send it. You didn't have computers. She asked to read one of your papers. Because she knew she'd gone with me to a library up in Minneapolis to gather resources for I it. I couldn't get Julie to read my papers. Yeah, well, <laughs> anyway... We're not going down that road. <laughs> so, um, and so then we came, I came back from Christmas and it was like I'd entered the human race. It was warmth and care and I was like, yes. Anyway, so we were, yeah, I couldn't have gotten rid of if I wanted to. So, but that was part of trusting God, right? I, I just, at that point in time, I realized I wasn't ready to give up. I wasn't like shoving myself down her throat. We did the very same things we were doing, trying to be faithful and kind and all of that. And so we just looked back and looking back at that, it was she kind of smiles, you know. And uh, I mean, she is by nature a private person. I'm totally in. So you, you live life, especially when you know each other that well and you find out who they are. And, and that's part of... I mean, you have your idiosyncrasies, as Julie does, and me and Martha Ann. And yeah, so it was just a blessing, though. I learned some lessons, and I'm enriched by having her in my life. She's faithful, loving, kind, forgiving, just a great mom. In light of that, Dr. G, for the generation that comes behind you, how do you shepherd in those relationships of, okay, when do I wait? and persevere, you know, he or she is not, does not seem open to me at this time, and I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord, and when is it, when does it become stocking, and it's time for me to move on? Yes, yeah, so mature people in your life, and um, 
who are maybe working with the girl. Sometimes it's the other way around, but rarely. But it, it is, yeah, there are some, and, and you just have to, um, you have to have somebody you're gonna talk to to help you realize, look, things could change down the road, but you need to give her space. You're not helping yourself by, by chasing after her. Give her room. And, uh, and there are times that people who just didn't connect at all, five years down the road, all of a sudden, they're together. So you just want to honor a person's concerns, and you may not be the right person. She may not be the right person. But have an older person in your life who can see, and, and they're not Twitter-pated, as they say, if you watch Bambi. Um, they, they, they aren't feeling the pull to say, look, you need to give her room or give him room, even though it hurts. You don't know why. But you need to honor Christ in the way you show kindness, even though it hurts. So yeah, I would have an older person in my life. At that point in time, I wasn't doing anything different, like trying to shove myself down her throat. I didn't understand, but I decided I'm not, I'm not letting go. I'll keep doing brotherly things, go to church together, preach, teach, Sunday school, help with this, help with that, just as a, a brother. I wanted to be more than that. And then really... You're following a First Timothy right. five framework as far as knowing appropriate boundaries as a brother and sister totally. in Christ. Yep, and yeah, that's helpful. But yeah, you, you just have to. There are times you have to even get another person who can help you see what you just can't see, or what you you aren't getting what you want as much. Along those lines, Dr. Rosanti, you shared with the men privately over lunch. We asked this about pursuing unity, and I wanted you, if you could, to share how in a busy life, busy church, busy many different things, do we pursue unity first with the Lord, but then in the primary relationships in our life? How do we, for want of a better word, not mess that up and lose sight of what's most important? Yeah, and pursuing unity is, in the end, pursuing biblical values, because unity is a truth-based reality, right? So part of the deal is, is how we look at priorities. And so when I think about priorities, because relationships is an intersection of life where honoring biblical priorities creates a, a biblical unity and a, a genuine biblical love, and even a patience and forbearance, knowing you're both trying to do this. And so I... I think about all the things in the, the world that are out there that we could be doing. I set aside all the immoral stuff, of course. And then we're left with the amoral, moral stuff in our lives. And I, then I think about those as immediate value, values, and ultimate values. And there's all kinds of good things that are in the immediate value. You know, you can read a book, you can roll on the floor with your kids, you can go to a game or watch a game or watch a show or whatever. Well, the, the biggest danger to me that men in ministry face in particular, but every believer faces, is that we often allow our lives to be too full of immediate value things that we neglect ultimate value things. And these aren't bad things. Musical lessons for your kids, being in the, in the soccer, basketball, volleyball team or whatever, you know, clubs, whatever. They're, they're not intrinsically wrong. But it seems like some parents seem to let the tail wag the dog. 
you know, the less important things become dominant. That so anyway, you got the idea. So so what I what I want to think about is what are my what are the ultimate value things I want to make sure in my life I guard those, and then I fit in ultimate value things as I can. So there's four ultimate values in my mind, and they're all relationship based. One is God, growing walk with the Lord. Two would be if I'm married, my wife. So I'm pursuing her in a way that she knows she's treasured. Three is five kids, shepherding my kids. And then four is ministry relating to my relationship with God. All of us, not just Mark, not just the elders, all of us are called to be in some kind of ministry. So those are the four things that should be in the core of my life. And I have a neat little analogy that I could tell you later on, but it uh, that helped me picture that, right? So if you don't, Put the ultimate values in first, they're gonna get crowded out by the immediate value stuff. So that means that first and foremost, I'm saying that if you and your wife or husband or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, are seeking to put those things at the core of your relationship, you're not married and then you are married, you have kids, those are the things that are the core values of how you live life, where you spend your time, so that means that even though there's an ebb and flow to life, like I told the guys that because I'm working on a writing project with another guy and he's ahead of me and applying a little pressure, that I'm probably not spending the time I should be spending because I'm so consumed with trying to get this thing done. Both my wife and I are looking forward to having this thing done, right? She knows I've told her, look, I, I realize I'm not this right now. There's more to say there. So I'm, I'm not being inattentive, not talking to her, but it just, I just, I want to spend more with her and the kids. So it, my point is, is there's an ebb and a flow to things where the, the project at work or whatever, but our tendency is to let that bad status quo become the status quo. We need to always keep before us that husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, elders at a church, that we're trying to pursue those ultimate values. And then I'm not going to allow immediate value stuff to crowd that out. So those core values drive decisions. And there are times you've got to trim. If you can't do ultimate value stuff because you have too many immediate value stuff, you've got to get rid of some. Because these are the eternally significant things. So if you're, if, you're, if you're pulling on the same plow, as you will, if you're, you're heading in the same direction, you're being a team as a husband and a wife and as, as mom and dad and, and so on, you need to inventory, take inventory. So, so sweetheart, how am I, what am I doing? How am I doing in these areas? It's a dangerous question. It is. And then you have to have a courageous wife because sometimes... They don't want to tell you what you want to hear. Maybe you're a big old meanie. I don't know. I mean, I just, yeah, I, I've told my kids, I've told my boys in particular, I've told my daughters too, I said, look, if there's something in my life that doesn't measure up to what I, I'm saying, I want you to hold me accountable. I'm, I'm, the ground's level to the foot of the cross. I want you to be able to say, Dad, you're being impatient with Mom, or Dad, you're whatever. I'm, I don't think I'm terrifying, but anyway, they normally haven't done that. So I tried it with my wife too. So, but the point is that that's where you're trying to 
help take a couple inventory? How can we do better in this area? What are the things in our life that seem to be eating at our time so we can't be unified at a heart ultimate value level? Because that's where unity comes from. It's you're heading down the same road with the same values, which are substantive points of unity that create depth in relationship, commonality of purpose. And those ebb and flow things, when stuff's especially hard, you, you talk to your wife and you this is coming. But help me not allow it to be status quo. Help me. And I can tell you stories about those abrupt reminders of my failure to get out of the bad status quo, too committed overcommitment. Dr. G, you mentioned letting your wife know that she's treasured. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us, you know, novices as we look back at the beginning and you further down the road, for you, what are some of the patterns or pursuits that express that to Martha Ann? Well, you, first of all, you figure out who she is, who your wife is or your girlfriend, um, because it, they don't all hear the same language in some ways. I do, I do believe there's a sense that uh, when we talk about love and respect, I mean, I do think that a woman is more refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by genuine, true love. And a guy maybe is more helped or even threatened if it's absent by kind of a loving respect. That's a whole other subject, right? So, but I, you have to figure out, so my wife is a very low maintenance. I have to convince her to go out to dinner with me. And she's a German scotch. We've all, for most of our lives, we had a hard time rubbing pennies and nickels together. And so, but that's what, flowers, I do flowers periodically. But it's like, she's happy and likes them, but don't do this too often. <laughs> so time, you know, is, is a big deal to be able to even sit together and watch something or go out for a walk or... So the, the, the part of the point is, is I, I want to, number one in my actions, to tell her I love her by wanting to spend time with her. I also want the whole the idea of depending on God, I want to be dependable. So we're together and we're walking through a crowd that every beautiful woman isn't, I'm not zoning in on her, right? I'm, you see people and, you know, whatever, but if I'm zoning in on anybody, it's her, right? So I'm, I want to make sure she knows that she is the object of my affection. And I'm just thinking of sexual engagement. I'm thinking of my heart. She's number one in my heart, right? So I, I use it. In, in, in another setting, I've talked about having a, a God-captivated life. I need to have a Martha Ann-captivated heart where, yeah, I can say hey to somebody, look them in the eye, be pleasant, but, but I want my wife to know that. And then the other thing is, is just, um, if you have kids at home, this has happened a few times where uh, I'm there and uh, my wife will say, Young man, you need to whatever. Yes, ma'am. And I'll say, Bob is my generic name, so I don't have to identify one of my kids by in person. So, young man, Bob, you come over here. 
You know that woman you just said that sarcastic yes to? She's the, one of the best people in your life. She loves you. She helps provide food, washes your clothes. She just gives of herself for you. She's God's gift to you. Now, what I need you to do is to remember when she tells you something to do, you speak to her with love and respect. Or something else might happen here. And so, so I want you to think about that when she tells you what to do. A, a snarky yes isn't going to work. I want you to, from your heart, be grateful for her in your life. My point, point is, is I want, I want to back her up. I want to guard her. I want to help my kids know how, how marvelous she is. I, because she's marvelous to me. And she is marvelous to them. So, so there's various areas where I'm trying to know who she is, be grateful for who she is, make sure my kids realize that sometimes when they're being frisky. So, uh, so when, you, when you come home from work, so you come home from work and you're thinking about the problem at work or some other problem going on and you walk in and you're just disengaged or you're kind of angry, you're ready to have somebody poke you and junk comes out, you need to come home and kind of set aside the junk, the things that are bothering you and say, Lord, help me walk in that door and be delighted to see my wife and my kids to see if I can take the kids out back or on a walk and give her a little time or whatever. So you're prepping yourself. So it just is, you're trying to pursue her. I pray this for me and for others. Pursue our wives in a way that know they're treasured that is proactive. You're thinking about it. How do, I, how do I love her well? How do I encourage her heart? How do I help her know that I, and I've told her, I want, Lord, Lord willing, sweetheart, with God's strength, and this is my heart, I can tell you right now, and I'm trying to live this out. I want my life, my, my love for you to be exclusive. I want you to be the focus of my attention. I really, that's a longing of my heart, and I'm trying to do that. Just so you know, I just want you to lay it on the line and feel free to tell me if I'm dropping the ball, but I... This is really, I want her to know that I verbalize it, I, I act it, I attitudes, that's what I'm trying to do. So we need to do that. To, to, we're feeding a fire that is part of a biblical fire. Of, it's a good. To, um, that, that creates, it's kind of like I tell the guys, the leaders, that in my mind when I've seen dysfunctionality at leadership level, it's because we get too busy to spend time with each other, to be able to, you know, be able to deepen those relationships and understand each other, to think the best of each other, to forbear. There's Because you have a deepening relationship, you're ready to do that. Well, husband and wife, uh, if you're not feeding that fire, then you aren't necessarily thinking the best, and you have questions, and there's distance, and there isn't unity. So that's where, as a husband, wives obviously have their role, but I know the husband's side better. Um, we just need to pursue that in both of our lives. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we love well? Dr. G, I'm going to close with this question. Um, in your schedule, which is incredibly busy, multiple trips to Israel and uh, writing for academic publishing and also your responsibilities at the seminary and then also in the local church and then with eight children, how do you, what you talked about first, ultimate value, what does it look like in your life to pursue the Lord 
in the midst of a busy schedule and to protect and preserve that relationship? Yeah, it, it shows up in different ways. I mean, I... So there are times I'm reading through biblical books, like sometime before a trip, I'll, I'll read through biblical books just to help me be thinking about those events, but I'm reading with a personal mode, right? There are times if I'm going to preach a sermon in a certain area, I'm going to try to read through either the book or a number of chapters that will help get in my head and heart, but those are beneficial times. It's not just reading to uh, create a test or to read for some factoid. And so um, sometimes it varies in exactly what it is. Proverbs, I've done the Proverbs a day, 31 Proverbs, you know, read one every day and you kind of know what day you're on. And if you get behind, just stick with your day. I also would say, um, and this is both horizontal and vertical, I try with Martha Ann, that when I get up and we go to bed, we pray. It may be a five-minute prayer or whatever, and I'm praying for the kids, for her, thank the Lord for her. Get up in the morning, she's an early bird. Normally, even if she's going to stay in bed for a bit because I get up pretty early, if she's said something, I'll, I'll lay down beside her, hold her hand, and we'll pray. So I just, that, that, that's part of, you know, you're praying to the Lord, you're communing with Him, bringing your, both praising Him for who He is, and you're bringing some of the shared needs before His feet, uh, to His throne, and then, and you're knitting hearts with your spouse. So, so those would be some of the things I would do. It's it just that you can't, sometimes if you don't do it every day, don't give up. Right? It isn't like a rabbit foot or a, a notch in the belt or whatever, okay, I'm, I might as well give up, I didn't do it, I don't have a streak going, uh, you, you, uh, so yeah, so you just don't, don't give up, you just try to develop that discipline and try to do it more frequently and, and uh, that's part of what you want to do is the, in the midst of the demands of life. Dr. G, thanks for sharing with us and, uh, Church family, hopefully, just putting these things together. <clears throat> um, because the parents have to get the kids, we're not going to have a chance to break up. But we do have this week our Lagos Share and Prayer Time. And I would ask you during that Lagos Share and Prayer Time, especially since we're praying through the household of God, what the church is, that you would devote some time praying for your relationships that God has put in your life. And just to sort of tie up, you know, what we walk through today Starting with this morning, with who God is, how great He is, His humility and His dependability, and therefore, in response to who He is, what we prioritize in our relationships. So, one, to be thankful for the relationships that the Lord has given you, and to remind you that there may be people in your life right now who might not seem significant or might not seem to be believers, and yet they're not in your life by accident. And you don't know what the Lord is going to do. Uh, to also think about the members of the household of God. That he's put us here not by accident, but to be together. And it will be wonderful to see if the Lord tarries and he allows us to go 20, 30 years from now. To see the fruit that's going to come out of those relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
to think about too, as I hear and watch Dr. Grisanti's life, in response to who God is and the gift that he's given us with that relationship with Christ and the relationship with one another, that stewardship of being intentional, of pursuing unity, specifically, you know, as he shared, what that looks like between the genders, what that looks like with our spouses, what that looks like with our children, okay, that it it just doesn't sort of happen, right? The Lord has really given us his word, his authority, to really provide us with direction of how he calls us to enjoy, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to enjoy the gifts that he's given. So if you could spend this week when you get together in your Lagos groups, just to pray through the relationships that God has given and how he's calling you to be intentional in those relationships, to glorify him and to love one another. And with that, we'll close our time in prayer. And then after that, parents, you can grab your children. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for being intentional and pursuing us. We want to thank you for the gospel, which reminds us, Lord, about how you prioritized us, not because we were special, not because we were good. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. And yet as we look at your life here on earth, we see the way in which you humbled yourself and you pursued sinners. And yet, at the same time, Lord Jesus, it was part of your ultimate value in pleasing your Father who is in heaven. It wasn't a distraction, and you did not let immediate things of immediate value crowd out the things of ultimate value. And so, we want to thank you for all the relationships that we do have. And we want to thank you for the gifts that you've given us in the household of God. And we want to ask you, Lord Jesus, would you just help us Uh, to learn from you how to love you and how to love one another. We want to thank you for this time that we've had uh, with Nabil and Dr. Grisanti, Lord, and we just ask that you'd be with them as they juggle family, shepherding children, loving their wives, Lord, ministering to you the upcoming time at Shepherd's Conference and also Dr. Grisanti's time in Israel on Thursday as he flies to the Middle East. And uh, we just pray that you would protect their marriages, protect their ultimate values, protect their relationship with you. And we pray that if it be your will, we'd have an opportunity uh, to be back together again to discuss more the ways in which, Lord, you have been so good to us in all of these things. So thank you for these things and for this day. In your name we pray. Amen.